So let's jump into it. We got a new series, a new series called Christmas Presents. And every year when, as a pastor, when you look at the Christmas season, you think, man, again, it's the same story. How am I going to tell it differently? This and that. You can't really tell it differently. It's everybody knows it. Um, it's like when you used to read a book to your kids and you just wanted them to go to sleep so you'd skip pages, but they knew it. And they'd be like, that's not what it says, Dad. And you'd be like, well, that's kind of what it says. You can't read. How do you know? Um, Anyway, you all can read. We're going to take a look at um, the presence of God through this series and how the presence of God has a tendency to change things in people's lives. And we're going to study some stories that maybe you haven't like, leaned into a lot over the Christmas season. And we're starting with the story of, um, of Zechariah and Elizabeth because we're going to start kind of right at the beginning. But you've got to remember the context in which this story begins. The context in which this story begins is that there had been 400 years of silence right? You've got the Old Testament, you've got the prophets, you've got all those sorts of things, and then God just gets really quiet for 400 years, and He doesn't say anything. He doesn't talk to anybody through prophets, really. There's just not much happening. And, and when God is silent, people have a tendency to do some interesting things, because it's not like people stop seeking their salvation. They just begin to create their own kind of salvation. So the first thing that people do in, in, when God is silent is that people seek their own salvation schema, right? Or their salvation schema. What I mean is they create their own soteriology. What I mean is that they create their own salvation narrative, right? They, they basically come up with a way that they can be saved. And that story that they create has, it, takes a lot of, it takes a lot of different forms. Back in the ancient world, it would have taken a form of, of possibly idolatry or paganism. Um, today, it takes the form of secularism. Even the Enlightenment can be said to be a portion of that. Sometimes technology becomes our salvation schema, or, 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 or economics becomes our salvation schema. This is something that's happened before, just so you know. I mean, back in the Old Testament, they said in those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes, right? Because they weren't getting any, any direct, directive command from God. And, and so what ends up happening kind of falls into this as well. You know what happened in the judge? They started saying, like, Lord, give us a king. And God was like, you, didn't, you don't need one. And no, we want a king. And so we do some of the same things. We look for a political or an economic savior, and we try and pin all our hopes on that person. But it's not just a person. It can be a person, but it can also be an ideology. Because oftentimes, people are the personification of that ideology. I mean, you got to think about it. When Adam and Eve fell, they didn't fall because the mango looked so good. I mean, mangoes can look pretty good. But, that, but it was, the, the snake didn't say, Eve, look at that mango. Come on. You're never going to taste a juicier mango. That's not what he said. What he said is God doesn't want you to be like him. There's a worldview. There's an ideology here that God doesn't want you to have. So she was sold on an ideology, and that's the same thing that we have a tendency to do as well. In fact, a perfect example of this is World War II. We saw ideologies crop up that eventually led to World War II that had never really been tried before. Oh, communism in, in that particular, in a kind of a Marxist way, or, or, or Nazism and fascism that showed up that way with either um, with Hitler who was kind of the personification of that fascism, or um, Mussolini in Italy. See, what happened was these ideologies, these salvation schemas that people came up with said, oh, that's the kind of politics we need. That's the kind of worldview we need. That's the kind of economy we need. If we can just get those things and get them right, then we'll be fine. We'll be perfect. We'll be saved. 
By the way, you know what that does? It, it polarizes people. When God is silent, people, because of this, become polarized. They become so far against one another that, that really bad things happen, and it feels like we're living in a world in conflict all of the time. Does this sound familiar, by the way, in any way, shape, or form? Because it kind of does, right? The seeking of ideological saviors or ideologies that save has a tendency to polarize people into camps and into categories. And as we've said here before, categories have no nuance. And so much vitriol, so much anger happens because of this. Because if you're not in my camp, my ideology, then you're in your camp. And our ideologies do not see eye to eye. So we must be enemies of one another. And the moment we put a category on somebody, we can dehumanize them. And we can treat them as less than. This is a problem. The other thing that happens when God is silent is that religion becomes um, uh, an end unto itself. It ceases to be the means by which we express who God is, and it becomes the salvation schema. I mean, you got to remember, you know, when, when, when God is silent, people still seek salvation. They just do it without God. And this is the milieu in which the Christmas story shows up. You see, you've got an incredibly legalistic society that had turned to religion to be their salvation. Now, when, when you turn to religion to be your salvation, you forget the point of religion, and we've talked about this a lot. So in this milieu of silence, in this milieu of great polarization, in this milieu of, you know, a religion being an end unto itself, God begins to move. And man, God begins to move, and we love the Christmas story because the Christmas story is extraordinary. It's something different. It's supernatural. The problem is that's not true because we have a worldview that said God is alive and moving. So what we do is we believe that this story is called the superordinary. For those who believe in God, we see this as superordinary and it's coming to light. It means that God is moving maybe a little more, but He always moves. Even if God is silent, God is always moving. We believe that God is, God moving is the, uh, the state of our reality. We could say it that way. God is alive, He is well, and He is moving. So what we are about to see in this series and in this story in particular is the superordinary, not the supernatural. This does not go out of the realm of what is natural. We forget that sometimes, especially when God is silent. So let's start. Luke 1, verse 6. It's the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, and you've probably heard of them before. It starts like this. It says, Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes. So they were not just the uber-religious. They were not just the legalists. They were faithfully righteous, doing what God wanted for the right reasons as well. And God always has a few of these people. Have you noticed? God always has a few of these people. Noah's a good example of them. Everyone's doing what they want, and there's Noah who's, who's maintaining his righteousness. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all the Lord's commandments and regulations. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. Now, this is a stigma that comes with barrenness. Also, there's a stigma that comes with barrenness because Zechariah was a priest, and he wanted to keep that priestly line going. One day, Zechariah was serving God in the temple 
for his order was on duty that week. So the way it worked is that there were, there were you know, temple orders, if you will, or temple lineages. And um, they said at one point there might have been close to like 18,000 priests that served in the temple over a year. So basically, your number would come up and you'd be like, hey, guys, I got to go. I got to serve a couple weeks in the temple. So God set it up that Zechariah was now serving at the temple in this particular week. And of course, the temple is the center for cultural and religious life. God is quiet, so the temple takes that place of God speaking. Luke 1, 9, as was the custom of the priests, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. Now, this is interesting, right? Um, as was the custom of the priest, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord. God needed to speak to Zechariah, and he needed to speak to Zechariah alone. So what he did is he providentially put things in order so at just the right time he would be serving. And then at just the right time he would be chosen by lot to serve specifically in the most holy place so that God could speak to them. Because if you're going to speak to somebody, why not have them come to your front room? Right? Here's the thing. You know when you ask God for something and then that, that there's an answer to that and you see, you know, the will of God happen in your life. You understand that God was providing for that to happen well before you prayed it, right? God works well before we decide or figure out what it is that we want. We call this a divine appointment. And I've talked to you a little bit about divine appointments before, but the one that sticks out in my mind is I was, I was getting off the plane in Ontario, called up an Uber. Uber drives up. I hop in the back of the car. Um, you know, the guy pulls out. And the first question that they always ask is, hey, what do you do? Which as a pastor, that's a dicey question. Because if you say you're a pastor, you're either going to get a whole diatribe about why religion is not something that you should be into, or you're going to get a whole diatribe about why they should be into it. Uh, you know, you never know which way it's going to go. So I was like, oh, I'm a pastor. And we were in it. Like 32 minutes home, we were in it the whole way. It was good. It was a good moment. Like, we're, you know, we're praying, we're sharing. It was good stuff, good stuff. I can't even remember exactly everything that happened. But I do know this. As we pulled up to my house, he looks at me and he goes, do you believe in divine appointments? And I said, yeah, I absolutely do. And he goes, this, today, this was a divine appointment. You said the things that I needed to hear today. Praise God, man. Praise God. Yeah. But, but here's the thing. God had to delay my flight just a little bit. It was only like 10 minutes delayed, but he had to delay my flight just a little bit. He had to, you know, take that long to get off the plane to before I hit the Uber for him to pick up that Uber for him to get there. That divine appointment didn't start when I pushed the button. The divine appointment started long before that because God knew what that person needed and knew what I needed. And this is what's going on right now in the book of Zechariah and in, in, in the book of Luke here right? Luke 1.10, while the incense was being burned, a great crowd stood outside praying. Now, this would have happened, and they would have known, by the way, what he was supposed to do in there and about how long it would have taken, right? So, so this is just background. Luke 1.11, while Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the incense altar. Well, that's different. But this is one of those moments where the text gives us a little Easter egg. You know, have you ever watched a movie and you saw something that you thought you'd seen in another movie somewhere? It's like this hidden gem, this hidden content. Or if you're playing a video game, I think they do that in video games a lot. I don't really play video games. And if I do, I don't get very far, so I've never seen anything like that. But, um, but my son says that that happens a lot, right? This is hidden content. Because the angel of the Lord showed up on the right side of the altar of incense. Had he shown up on the left side, it would have been bad news. But because he showed up on the right side, it's going to be good news, and we know that. Right? So Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. Why? Because every time we encounter divinity, 
we get freaked out. We always have reactions. So it's because encountering divinity reminds us of our humanity. And with that humanity, we are reminded of our brokenness and our sin and our need for something more, for a Savior. And I get it. Some don't like this idea that we're broken people. I get that. You know, hey, God made me, and this is the way I am, and I'm not broken. I I get that. The only problem is if you don't recognize your brokenness, you never need a Savior. And if you don't need a Savior, you never go seek one out, even if He's standing there knocking on your door the whole time. Brokenness is not a death sentence. You understand that. Brokenness is the beginning of understanding how good God is. And so recognizing our brokenness is okay. And when you come in, when you encounter the divine, when you encounter the presence of God, even if it's through an angel, you recognize that. So he was afraid. But encountering divinity is so superordinary that we don't know how to react, really. Right? And in fact, I see it here sometimes. We're in, we're in worship and we're like in it. People are worshiping. Like you guys were today, man. It's amazing. I'll look around. I'll see somebody who I never thought would have been affected just in tears crying. It's because you experienced the divine and you didn't know how to react. So you just start leaking. Right? Because you don't know what to do. And encountering divinity, it changes us. Our narrative changes. It stops the focus being on us, and it begins to move our perspective to God. He becomes the content of our conversations. He becomes the purpose for our actions, and He becomes the target of our trajectory in life. It changes everything. And by the way, that can't be taken away from you. When you've experienced God, no one can take that away from you. Now, some of you probably had conversations over the Thanksgiving table with with wonderful family members who either no longer believe or who never believe and think it's their job to make you not believe as well, right? Some of you had those conversations, but if you've experienced God, no amount of conversation, no amount of rational conversation is going to get you where they want you to go. Because even at the end of the day, when they go, doesn't that make sense? You go, yeah, I don't believe in a God that makes sense. Whatever gave you that idea? You started with the wrong premise. You thought I needed this to make sense. I don't need God to make sense. I need God to be God, and I believe He is. So you can keep talking, and you can keep thinking that I'm stupid, but the wisdom of God is foolishness to the wise. So, you know, enjoy your sweet potatoes. And I don't mean that like snarky. You understand that when people deconvert, it's very lonely. They lose their communities. And so they don't want to be lonely, so they want you to deconvert too. Because because losing God is hard. So never be arrogant when somebody is deconverted. Not just pray for them, but love them deeply in their disbelief because it's the only thing that will bring them back to belief, because it's not going to be an argument. It's going to be a a loving conversation, and it's going to be an overwhelming sense of love that can only come from God. It's going to have to be super ordinary love. That's the only thing that will bring someone back. Let's continue on. Chapter 1, verse 13, it says, but the angel said, and I feel like the angels always have to say this, right? This is how they start every conversation. Hey, don't be afraid. Uh, it's, it's just, uh, get, get over it. Get over it. <laughs> it must be how Michael Jordan feels when he walks into a room. Right? He walks in a room, everyone's like, oh, you're Michael Jordan. He's like, are we done? Okay, let's move on. Eh, it didn't work. I tried Brad Pitt last, last sermon. 
Didn't work that well either. It's just, I should have just let it go. Sorry. Bad illustration. Anyway, the angel says, like, hey, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife Elizabeth will give you a son, and you are to name him John. Now, this must have been bittersweet for Zechariah. First of all, Zechariah was in there praying the prayers of Israel. So when God says, I heard your prayers, he's actually not talking about those prayers. Not that he didn't hear those prayers. Those aren't the ones he's talking about. What he's talking about is the, the lifelong prayer that Zechariah and, um, and Elizabeth have been praying for, for a child. But it's bittersweet because he says, you're going to have a kid, but you can't name him what you want to name him. You got to name him John, right? And that would have been bittersweet because the, 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 the legacy of a family name is important, right? It's important. And it would have been very important for a priest at the time. But it's all right. Luke 1.14, you'll have great joy and gladness. This is going to be a good thing. And many will rejoice at his birth. This is prophetic, right? It's not just for you guys. Many are going to rejoice at his birth. This is going to be a big deal for a lot of people, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. Now, this is not a lifestyle uh, declaration. He said he's going to be raised as a Nazarite. You know who else was raised as a Nazarite? Samson, right? There were Nazarites that showed up. And what this is, is someone who had been given to God from before they were born. God, God that child was given to God. So they, they wouldn't have, you know, alcoholic drinks or wine or any of this. They would have lived a bit differently because they were given, the child was given in service to God early on. And then it says, and he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He's destined for great things. And listen, any parent knows this. You look at that child the first time, and you're like, this child is going to change the world. You don't understand this child is going to change your world, <laughs> right? But you think this child is going to change. And then oddly, whatever you're into, that's what the child's going to be the best at, right? Have you noticed that? Like, if you love football, you're going to be like, this is the next great quarterback. <laughs> and then they turn 13, and they don't like what you like. And you're like, I don't know you anymore. But listen, you know what he says next? He will, be, he will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. Come on. Dude, what if, what if you're looking at your child? Now, let's say you're into golf, right? And somebody walks in, let's say it's an angel, and goes, hey, power and spirit of Tiger Woods. Ah, <laughs> I don't know those words. But that's what you'd feel like, right? You'd be like, look, everyone, it's Tiger Woods. And they'd be like, dude, that is not Tiger Woods. That's a little baby, and he's white. That's not, you were very confused. But it said, the angel said, he'll be a man with a, this is a big, he'll prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn their hearts of the fathers to their children, and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. This is a big ask. There's a prophetic role that this kid is going to play. He's going to prepare the way of the Lord. Are you kidding? And Zechariah, like, he works in faith. He's a priest. He's like, this is big. But Zechariah had a few questions that were maybe not unreasonable. So he says this. Zechariah said to the angel, uh, how can I be sure this is going to happen? I'm an old man now. And then he does something that almost no other biblical character did. Because most biblical characters, do you remember the Adam and Eve story? God says, Adam, what's going on here? And he goes, hey, that woman, 
right? He just like throws his wife under the bus. But what Zechariah says is, I'm old now, and my wife is also well along in years. Like, that's tender. That's so sweet. Like, he didn't just be, uh, you remember what happened with Abraham, right? Like, your wife's going to have a baby. And he's like, ha ha, have you seen her? Which is a paraphrase. It doesn't say that exactly in the Hebrew. But that's essentially the feeling, right? Like, have you seen this woman? There's no, no, she's not having a kid. There's no way. At least Zechariah's like, I'm old. She's old too. But like sweetly, he says it in a nice way. But like there's a biological issue, right? This is pretty reasonable. But I love the way the angel answers, right? The angel answers in 119. He goes, hey. I'm Gabriel, right? He doesn't even like, let me explain how this is going to work. He's like, I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you the good news. That's good. And I love, like, I love that he kind of name drops a little bit. He's like, I'm Gabriel. Have you heard of me? Because like, you may not know a lot about angels and stuff, and there's a lot out there written. You may not know, but like Gabriel, that's one you know, right? And he's like, I stand. I'm in the presence of God every day. I think I know what I'm talking about. I'm the angel, Gabriel. And then Gabriel gets a little petty, I feel like. He says, listen, but now, since you didn't believe what I said, You're going to be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. For my words, not yours, my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. Right? You ever wonder if, like, Gabriel was just a little off the reservation? And, like, God's like, when he came back, God's like, I didn't tell you to do that. He's like, I know, but, like, I made the audible. I felt like I needed it. Because he just wasn't trusting me, and I'm Gabriel. I don't know if that's how the conversation went, but it feels like he was like, mm, now you just annoyed me, man. You shouldn't have done that. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, here's the thing. He kind of hit him where it hurts because Zechariah was a priest and priests like to talk. Pastors like to talk. That's all I do. I have no other skills. I can't fix a car. I can't fix a toilet if you need me to. I can talk, though. That's, that's the only thing I do. If God showed up and was like, hey, this is going to happen, and I was like, ah, I don't know, and he's like, you can't talk about it, I'd be like, what? That's the only thing I want to do now. Yeah, you can't get to do that. See, it's interesting. If you remember the story of Gideon, so God shows up and says, uh, raise me an army. And Gideon goes, sounds good, goes and raises an army and then goes to God and says, hey, I've got a few questions, so I've got this fleece. Could you make it wet and then dry and then dry and then wet or however that way it went, right? But he had already built the army. You see, faithfulness should always be the first response when God is asking us something. Faithfulness first. Then you got questions. But Zechariah didn't do this. Zechariah was like, ah. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah. You realize this is all happening, and they're waiting for Zechariah to show up. They're wondering why he was taking so long. When he finally did come out, he couldn't speak to them. Then they realized from his gestures and his silence that he must have seen a vision in the sanctuary. Now remember, let's set this up, 400 years of silence. 
God's not speaking. God's not giving people visions. There's no prophets. Nothing's happening. And all of a sudden, this guy walks out and is like, I don't know. I don't, what's the sign language for Gabriel? Like, I don't know. Does he have a sword? I don't know what he has. He's an angel. He's wings. I would never, nobody would know what I was saying. All of a sudden, God is moving again. All of a sudden, God's prepared. God is moving again. All of a sudden. Man, can you imagine what would happen? Why the people are starting to get excited? By the way, we come from a tradition where they they felt like God was moving again. And the amount of change that that made, you know, in the world at that time from 1844 on, man, it made a big difference. Maybe not the biggest difference on the planet, but it did make a big difference to a group of people who felt like God was moving. Because it was, like, it was like 400 years before they had taken this big inhale of God and then they had been holding their breath for 400 years. And you know after a while, like you can't do that. You begin to exhale. And at the end of this exhale, you gotta do something or you're gonna die. And as they end this exhale of 400 years, all of a sudden God begins to speak and they're able to breathe them in again. There was excitement. This is why it was prophesied that there will be great joy. The fathers will turn back towards their sons and the, that the, 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 the ungodly will begin to listen to the, the wise words of the godly. Man, this must have been excitement. And then the most fascinating thing happens, and I don't know if you've ever recognized this before. I sure, certainly hadn't the, when I read it. The next statement says, when, the, when Zechariah's week of service was over, he returned home. Let's take a moment there. He's, he's got this, this bit that he's slated to work. He sees God through the angel. He, he's in the presence of divinity. He is, he is, that's clearly a big deal. He's, and he finishes his job. That's fascinating to me. This new call didn't release him from his commitments. Zechariah still had to finish his prior commitments. It's because when God asks something of us, it's not always a new direction. Remember, they were faithful. They were righteous. Sometimes it's an enhancement of the same direction that God called you for a long time ago. Like we want, this, we want this big moment, this aha moment that changes everything in life. This actually didn't change Zechariah's life except that it enhanced everything that he had wanted and all his faithfulness that he had been given anyway. He finished his job before he went home. That, that blows me away. Because I'd be like, peace. <laughs> nah, man. He's like, ah, let me finish sweeping up. Because this is what God has called me to do. Because he understood that what God had called him to do that transcended any job was to be faithful. To be faithful to doing what he said he was going to do to God. Luke 1.24. Soon afterward, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and went into seclusion for five months. Probably just didn't want to deal with the gossip at that point. Right? Just get away for a little while. And then she says how kind the Lord is. Now she had a very different take on this. When, she, when all this happened to her, what she said is, man, how, how kind God is. He's taken away my disgrace of having no children. That gets me. Because we've got this, you know, incredible presence of God. We've got this, you know, this super ordinary experience that Zechariah has. And all she thinks is, oh, the stigma of not having a kid is gone. 
You see, whenever we recognize and experience the presence of God in our lives, whatever stigma surrounds us from whatever's gone on before, that's gone. It doesn't matter anymore. It's changed. We've now been given this new life. We've been given this new, new identity. So everything that was said about us before doesn't, doesn't stick. And then this new life that we're given is without stigma in Jesus. When God shows up, all stigmas are gone. And that's why we say His presence is the ultimate present. Because no matter what you receive this Christmas season, and no matter what you've ever received in any Christmas season, nothing is more life-giving. Nothing is more life-changing. Nothing is more overwhelming and does away with the stigmas that we've grown to become accustomed to than the presence of God in our lives. It's the gift that never goes away. It's the gift that no one can argue out of your life. It is the presence of God. And that is the ultimate presence because it's yours, and it defines who you are in a very different way than you've ever been defined before. And then you can say things like, man, how, how good is God that He took away my stigma, that He changed everything for me? That's what we hope for you in this Christmas season. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, Jesus, um, Thank you for showing up. Thank you for showing up your presence as established in Gabriel so that Zechariah could see it. Lord, thank you for promising John who would make way for the Lord so that people would be prepared for when Jesus shows up and the presence of God becomes real and palpable in the world. Lord, make us little Johns. Before that, make us little Zacharias. When the angel shows up in our lives, we don't question, we go and do. Then maybe we have some questions. But Lord, might we receive your presence today and throughout this series and throughout our lives. We ask this in your holy name, Lord. In the name of Jesus, amen.